Is it possible for the workplace to be spiritual? I'm Garland McWaters, and this is the Spirit of Leading podcast. Recently, I was asked to present a lesson on spirituality in the workplace at the Unity Center in Tulsa, where I attend. Perhaps it was because my minister knew that I had spent the last 25 years in the workplace as a freelance trainer on a variety of topics. Whenever I go into a company to present, I'm always the outsider. So it seems like all the employees just want to talk to me and tell me what it's really like to work in their business. They seem to pour out their hearts to me. I would like to report that spirituality is alive and well in the workplace. However, however, according to Gallup and other research organizations, with two-thirds of the workplace admitting that they are not engaged at work, and upwards of 60% of the people claiming that they are stressed out most or all of the time at work, there's obviously something lacking in the spirituality department. I remember a time when I had spent 40 hours with a supervisory group in a small manufacturing company over a 10-week span. Most of our time was spent in working on improving human relations skills. And when we got to the end of the training, they told me how much they really enjoyed the training, all the sessions, and what they had learned. And then they told me, unfortunately, we're not allowed to do any of that stuff here. is important because in the normal lifetime of working, the average American is going to spend over 115,000 hours either at work or commuting to and from work or getting ready to work. We also spend 12 or more years preparing ourselves for a job or a career. In fact, you can spend around 47% of your waking work years on the job. I think, first of all, we ought to begin with the definition of spirituality. Here's what I mean by it. Spirituality is the soulful search for meaning in a universe where one feels connected with one's complete self and with others and with the entire universe. I could talk about some of the corporate efforts to allow workplaces that are more open to employees expressing their faith and to talk about the spiritual values that a lot of workplaces are starting to speak about. Themes such as values-based leadership have gained a lot of traction in many workplaces. Some organizations even point with pride to the efforts that they have to encourage spirituality in the workplace. They'll do things like provide quiet places where employees can go to pray or to de-stress. They'll offer spirituality study groups. Some provide specific programs that promote character and ethics. And some companies even realign their corporate vision and mission to align with a higher purpose and commitment to community service. But as positive as all these trends are, I still think it misses the point. What we really need to focus on is the work itself. And when I say work, I wonder sometimes what really comes to your mind. I ask this question a lot of my seminars, I say work. And usually the things that come out are kind of negative. Things like work is something you've just got to do. You have to just you know, suck up and go do it. And it's what you do 
to pay for what you'd rather be doing. And then when I turn around and say the word play, I ask people their impression, and they're always talking about things that are about having fun, about doing something interesting or something that's entertaining. It seems like most of us equate work with toil and drudgery, and it's not very pleasant. So I want to begin by telling you about what I believe is my first experience with work. My mother's dad, who I called Papa, was a farmer. He worked a half section of land in southwestern Oklahoma, about a mile and a half north of the Red River. I spent every summer there and most holidays on the farm until I started college. The one thing I really loved about going to the farm was riding with Papa on his tractor when he plowed. In the summer when we arrived, he'd be one-waying or turning over the land after the wheat harvest. And I'd run down to the field, and I would hop up on the tractor with him and stand beside him. And we would just go round and round and round. He started on the outside and worked his way into the middle. That's what one-waying was. Sometimes I got to sit between Papa's legs and steer. He turned loose and let me hold it while he rolled a cigarette and lit it. I noticed that the plow would create a furrow on the right side. And when we turned, we could look back. And then I would notice how straight that furrow would be. I noticed that the furrow also was the guide for the tractor's big right wheel. Then one day, my papa asked me, so what do you think you can handle it? Do you think you can drive the tractor? So he stopped and let me sit in the seat all by myself. And he took my place standing beside the seat. So I knew, because I'd watched, that if I followed that furrow, if I kept my wheel in that furrow, my, my furrow would be straight too. So my plan was to make sure that I kept that big wheel in the right furrow. So I could hardly wait until that first turn, because I knew when we looked back, I could see how straight it was. And when I looked back to see how straight my furrow was, that I had plowed, my heart just sank. Because, I mean, my furrow was jagged and wandered all over the place. I got to finish the entire round. In fact, I plowed several rounds. And then when we were switching back, I asked him, well, how did he keep that furrow so straight? Because I, I actually never saw him look down at the furrow. And he said, in true Papa fashion, he said, Oh, I don't know, son. Never thought about it. It's probably just where you learn to focus your eyes. I just keep looking ahead. And that idea about focusing your eyes looking forward turned out to be an important life lesson for me. In fact, my first job after high school graduation was to go back for the summer to southwest Oklahoma and hire out to farmers plowing up their wheat fields. It was a sun up to sundown work, 12 to 14 hours a day, a dollar an hour, and I thought I was really raking it in. But, but the one thing I remember, my first real experience with what I would call work, was actually in the fifth grade. We lived on the farm with my grandparents that year because my dad had been deployed to Korea. He was career army. My papa came in one day in September, almost frantic, and he asked me if I thought that I could handle that small John Deere A tractor he had. It wasn't much bigger than a garden tractor. I was only 11, but I said, oh yeah, I can do that. And he said, okay, let's go. We got to get the wheat in the North 40 before it starts to rain this weekend. And he was running late. So he would plow ahead of me with his one way. And then I followed behind him over the freshly plowed ground with the planter and dropped the wheat seed in. In my mind, I was farming. <laughs> I remember that whole year I watched that uh, field grow as that grass came up green and eventually would graze cattle on it and so forth. But when June got there, I was excited to see how my field did on that yield. If it would beat last year's crop, I still remember how proud I felt when I learned that we had beat it by two bushels an acre. It was a good year. 
and there were other memories of those years, all of which gave me a reverence for the land and its bounty and how when you take care of the land, the land takes care of you. More importantly, I felt part of something larger than myself. Today I look back upon those experiences, especially that first one when I was in the fifth grade, and I would call it spiritual, a spiritual experience. My earliest memory of being asked about what I wanted to do for a career was about the 10th grade. My dad asked me one day what I thought I wanted to do, and I hadn't really given it much thought. But I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, so I said, I want to be a lawyer. And he said, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and his reasoning was, because you can't be a Christian and a lawyer. He had a pretty narrow view of things. He'd already decided that in his mind, what he wanted my life's work to be was in the ministry. And that's a whole another story. And even though I resisted, and I spent the next four years running away from that whole idea, I actually finished college at the age of 22 with a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies and a pulpit ministry in my first church. I spent four years in the ministry before seeking a different vocation. And along the way, I had some great jobs, and I had some really awful jobs. But it took several years of experience to come to a fuller and deeper understanding of work that I'm about to share with you. One day I realized that I'd had a similar problem as Israel's King Solomon of the Old Testament. King Solomon is regarded as the greatest king of Israel. When Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, I'm convinced he was obviously frustrated, because here's the way that book begins. He says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? How many of you can actually identify with that feeling of meaninglessness? And that's Solomon, the king of Israel, speaking. He had money. He had power. He had servants. He was the boss, the man. He was smart and wise. He had palaces and farms and vineyards, and he built stuff, lots of stuff. Anything he wanted to build, he built. And he had women, lots of women in harems. And he was still not satisfied with his job. <laughs> he called it meaningless, vanity, chasing after the wind. Hey, what's with that? Why? Well, come to find out, I think he wasn't much different than you or I when it came to finding meaning and joy in his life and work. And then Solomon wrote, I know there's nothing better for man than to be happy and do good while they live, that every man may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil or work, for this is a gift of God. So the satisfaction wasn't in how magnificent the project was or even how much money he made or even the type of work. So where was all this satisfaction if it wasn't in all that he did and had and all the money he'd made? In fact, Solomon didn't even seem to be that high on money and stuff. He wrote this. He said, whoever loves money never has enough. Isn't that the truth? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him 
no sleep. So I gather from that that Solomon was saying that there is an intrinsic joy in the act of working itself, just the act of working. So that led me to the conclusion that maybe we should rethink what work is and why we work. Again, going back to my biblical roots, according to the Genesis story of creation, when God created, it was an act of will or volition or of intent. That what came forth or what was manifest in the creative act, it came from the essence of the makeup of the creator. And the meaning of the word word was a creative force or energy. What that means to me is that God's work is the act of creating. And I think that's true, whatever your concept of God might be. I believe that when we are truly working, we are creating something that is a manifestation of our essence. Your work is a statement of who you are. It comes from your core being. I believe that we are body, soul, and spirit. Our body is nothing but a vessel of our soul. And our soul is a reflection of the divine whole. We identify ourselves by the work we do. It's personal. In fact, when you meet someone, you always ask them, well, what do you do? Work is always personal. And it kind of wrinkles me when a manager says or someone says, well, you know, it's not personal. You cannot separate me from my work. If my effort is not personal, then, according to my understanding of work, it's not work. Because work is inherently a creative and spiritual action. I, Garland McWaters, am not separate and apart from the universe, but I am part and parcel of a loving and unified whole. And when I offer something by way of my physical self, it actually springs from the creative energy of my core soulful self and is a reflection of the divine spirit. That is my work, and so it is for you as well. This is why Solomon said it was a gift of God for man to find satisfaction in all of his work. Because in so doing, we come to know who we are at our most soulful core level. And that's not what most workplaces are about, and we all know it. And here's why I say that. The mind of business is transactional. It's focused on extracting and converting one set of resources at cost X, into outputs for which someone will pay X plus. Now kind of imagine if the Genesis creation story went this way. Then the Lord God formed a man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living asset. Or maybe man became a living resource. Well, we all know that's not what it says. It says, no, man became a living soul or being. The language of business says workers are there to use or to exploit so that they can add value to a product or a service. It's a transaction. You put in X and you get out X plus, hopefully. And just remember the purpose of the performance review is actually to determine whether you are worth keeping around. Labor must provide a measured and predictable return. 
and I'm not being cynical, I'm just being honest about that, because labor is one of the things that you put into the formula to come up with profitability and productivity. So when I go in to teach or present, management wants to know what the ROI, which means the return on investment is, on my fee and the other fees, other costs associated with the training. Management presumes that when their production drops or the quality falls off, there's something wrong with the workers. And so trainers like me are called in to fix them, sort of like being a people mechanic. More than once, I've had a manager lament to me, you just can't get good help these days. You've probably heard that too. Barry Schwartz, a psychologist, wrote the book, Why We Work, said, the reason you can't get good help anymore is when you give them work that is demeaning and soulless. I had the privilege when I was a much younger man to attending a presentation by the excellence guru Tom Peters. He wrote the book In Search of Excellence that's regarded as one of the most important management books of all time. And in that presentation way back in 1990, I believe it was, he posed the question to the audience of business leaders. He said, when your employees are not working for you, what are they out doing? And he went on to answer that question for them. He said, when they're not at work, they're out running the, the little league or coaching a team or running a scout troop or uh, being in the choir at church or being a leader in their church or being in a civic club and volunteering for the community or writing music or uh, performing for the community theater or many, many other kinds of things that were creative and adding value to their community. And then he said, we take these wonderfully talented people when they are not working for you, they're out doing all these creative things and adding value in their own particular way to their communities. And we bring them into our workplaces and then we manage them into incompetence. And the room got real quiet because we all knew it was true. He was really telling us the tragedy is that when we bring these people into our workplaces, we're not even getting their real work. We're getting a transaction, something less than their work. Effort X for Output Y. It was 1998, I was working in my office, and I got a call. The caller said, is this Mr. McWaters? I said, yes, it is. And he said, well, I understand you do motivational stuff. He, that's the way he said it, motivational stuff. And I said, well, yeah, I do. I teach motivation, and I de deal with the issues of motivation in the workplace. And he said, well, here's what we're looking for. We want someone to come into our organization and motivate everyone. And then he asked me, he said, are you funny? And I said, well, what, what? He said, are you funny? He said, we want, uh, we're looking for someone who can keep their attention, who will come into our workplace and motivate everybody to, to give heart and soul to our workplace. I told him, you know, I, I wouldn't stand up comic, but I thought I had a good sense of humor. He said, well, that's what we want. We want someone to come in and really charge everybody up to give heart and soul to our company. You know, sometimes you say things that you don't really, you probably shouldn't have said after you think about them. Or sometimes after you think about him, you realize, I'm glad I said it. Well, here's what I said when he said, we want someone to come in and charge everybody up to give heart and soul to our company. I simply said, I believe they already want to do that. And I'm wondering what you're doing to prevent it. Obviously didn't think that was very funny. <laughs> he said, we'll get back to you. And he never called back. So remember the research that says consistently 
that two-thirds of the workforce is disengaged at work. They're just going through the motions mostly, but their heart and soul is not in it. There's nothing there that connects them with the spirit of working. So answer me this. If business had not realized that encouraging spirituality at work was actually also good for the bottom line, do you think they'd be willing to embrace the concept? If encouraging spirituality were a good idea in and of itself, why has it been necessary for this to be researched and studied for years by our top researchers and universities to show that there actually is an ROI number for those companies that encourage it? The same is true for training people in people skills, what we have always called the soft skills. The fact that it's still a tough sell in many workplaces should answer that question. But I'm happy for the progress, and maybe management still doesn't get it. But I am a living soul, and as an employee, I am not your greatest asset or your greatest resource. I am a living soul seeking an outlet to express my divine essence through my work. I want to give my creative energy to a meaningful endeavor. Why? Because I know there's nothing better for man than to be happy and do good while he lives, that every man may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his work, because this is a gift of God. It is my divine spiritual nature to want to give heart and soul expressed through my work. It's as natural as breathing. And then we find out what young people want in the workplace. They want a place where they can do meaningful and valuable work in service of clear goals and be appropriately recognized for their contributions. This is a spiritual and empowering workplace to give heart and soul. And when they are discouraged by short-sighted management and unclear expectations, doing what they regard as unfocused, busy work, they lose heart. Consequently, they become disengaged and look outside the workplace to offer their spiritual work. And I can understand their frustration. At some point, the toil seems meaningless because they want the same thing we have always wanted from our work and where we work. Even so, I have a slightly different perspective of the issue. I think we've been looking at spirituality in the workplace backwards and putting the emphasis in the wrong place. And by shifting our perspective, I believe spirituality is possible in every workplace, regardless of leadership style or management skill. Furthermore, Spirituality is independent of the type of job or the actual business or organization. Independent. Spirituality is not a perk. Spirituality is not a benefit of the workplace. Spirituality is not all the things the workplace provides for you so that you can find a place to express your faith. Spirituality is what you bring to the workplace as you offer your creative work. Your true work goes to what you believe is your core essence. It's knowing who you are, what spiritual gift or gifts you're offering, regardless of the job you do. First of all, your work is not the same as your job title or your job description. The job title is just a label of your task or job description. 
Because think about this. If in the core of who you are, you are a peacemaker, you bring peace and harmony to any workplace. If in your core you are a healer, you can provide healing and comfort no matter what job you do. If you are a problem solver, you can help others organize their own knowledge and skill and service to solution finding. If you're a teacher, you coach and mentor others who are seeking to understand and grow regardless of what your job title is. If you are an encourager, you can be a source of positivity and hope no matter what your job description. If you're an analytical, you can help others see patterns in data or find root causes of difficulties when others are confused and overwhelmed. If you see the potential in others, you see them as alive with possibilities and you look for ways to challenge or encourage them and to develop them. And that drive transcends all job descriptions. If you're thrilled by new ideas, you have the ability to help others see new possibilities and connections when they might have otherwise passed over them. Because you can offer your talent and gift in service to any job because these talents are the core of your work. They represent your true soulful self, your creative spirit. Because we offer our work for the greater good in a spirit of peace and unity, we act humbly and gently and not out of ego and self-importance. You see, at the tender age of 11, when I first discovered work, I offered my spiritual work to my papa, who asked me to be part of something larger than myself, to contribute to the success of something that represented the essence of family cohesiveness and survival. He asked me to reach inside myself and to enlarge my expectations of living. You can probably think of times when something like that happened to you, that it was asked of you to do something more than who you were, and you responded with all your heart and soul. I was working on a media presentation many years ago. The presentation was on excellence. My premise was that excellence is a mindset. It's not a competition. I was looking for real life examples that I could somehow showcase or use in this presentation. So I was actually driving around town looking for examples of excellence, what I thought was excellence, whether it was in a product or a service or whatever it might be. And when I drove through the neighborhoods, I realized something. I realized that my neighborhood was cleaner the trash was picked up by the sanitation department. My trash cans were always put back on the curb and aligned and the lids were put back on and there was never any trash scattered, scattered around. But when I looked through other neighborhoods, the trash cans were thrown, just kind of thrown out in the yard. They were laying on their sides, some of them. And there was paper flying around where they didn't quite make it into the truck. So I thought, well, maybe I'll watch the people who pick up my trash the next time they come through. So I was ready for them. It was uh, one Tuesday morning, I think, and I had my, it was 6.30 in the morning, I had my cup of coffee in my hand, and I stood on my front porch, and I watched as I sipped my coffee, and here they came. And I noticed that they were uh, singing and talking to each other, and there was chatter, and the truck kind of kept moving at a consistent speed rather than stopping and starting and stopping and starting, and that uh, the crew uh, would help each other if they needed to, but they always got the trash in the truck. If anything fell out, they picked it up and threw it in the truck. And then they went and meticulously put the trash cans down on the, on the uh, curb and put the lids back on them. And it seemed like it was a fluid motion. It just flowed. And I was just really, really impressed with their efforts. So I thought, well, the next time they come back around, I'm going to be ready for them. I'll have my camera and I want to talk to them and so forth and interview them. So on Thursday, Thursday or Friday morning, I was ready for them. 
and here they came, and I met them at the, front, at, the, at the end of the street so I could have time to talk to them, and, and I told them what I was doing and, what I, and why, and uh, so they agreed to talk to me as they worked, but they wouldn't stop. They didn't want me to interrupt their flow, as they said. And what one of them told me was, with a big smile on her face, was, oh, it's all female crew. A uh, big smile on her face. She said, we're the best crew in the department. We get all the awards. Uh, we get all the recognition. Our customers call us, call in unsolicited and compliment our supervisor on how well we do. We're so proud of this and we want to keep it up. So, you know, keep up with me. But they, <laughs> I kind of had to walk and take my pictures because they wouldn't stop. But that just impressed me. It just impressed me that they were doing more than just picking up the trash. They were actually working. And I wondered, where on the hierarchy of jobs do you put trash collector? You see, they weren't saving the world. They weren't leaders of their countries. They weren't a king or a president or a senator. They weren't the governor. They weren't curing cancer. They weren't exploring outer space. They weren't captains of industry or in high finance. They were just carrying off my trash so I wouldn't have to. And they were keeping my street clean because they believed it was important to do it. As Solomon said, it's good to find satisfaction in your work, for this is a gift of God. So back to the question, is there spirituality in the workplace? If you're offering your real work, that expression of the divine's creative energy that manifests itself through your heart and soul effort, regardless of your job, you bet there is. You bring it. You are your spiritual work. And so it is. And so we are. I think you can tell I'm passionate about this topic. The central tenet of my philosophy is that we are, at our core, spiritual. I believe our goal should be to create workplace environments where everyone can offer their creative and spiritual work. Think how many problems we'd solve if our workplaces were like that. And I believe they can be. Well, that's it for this installment of the Spirit of Leading podcast. Thanks for listening. I also encourage you to recognize and appreciate anyone who demonstrates the spirit of leading at work and in the community. Be watching for the next installment of the Spirit of Leading podcast. If you go to the web, my website, you can sign up and join the Empowered, and I'll send you a link to the next installment when it's available. So until next time, I urge you to live empowered each and every day, to encourage the spirit, to enliven the heart, to enlighten the mind, and to enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters. Mm-hmm.